Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. Last week, I wrote about a speech delivered by Louis Neiser on the occasion of Stephen Weiss's 73rd birthday in 1947. Neiser was a famous trial lawyer and best-selling author, and Stephen Weiss was a reform rabbi who yielded more power and influence than perhaps any other Jew in America in the 1940s. Weiss today is reviled by the Jewish masses as almost an accomplice to murder for not doing more to save European Jewry during the Holocaust. And yet, in this 1947 speech, Neiser predicts that Weiss will go down in history as one of the greatest Jews who ever lived. Neiser's prediction is so unbelievable that it could be exhibit number one in a display on the terrible judgment of the elite class, whose every word so many of us worship. Here are just some excerpts from this speech. Neiser says, It is impossible for contemporaries to measure the stature of a gigantic figure in their midst. I therefore ask you to transport yourself in imaginative flight to March 17, 2024. It is an extraordinary day. In more than 30 countries of the world, there are celebrations of the 150th anniversary of the birthday of Dr. Stephen S. Weiss. Palestine, which is now an independent Jewish commonwealth, has declared a national holiday. In a ceremony in the capital, Tel Aviv, the president points out that just as the American nation reveres Jefferson, Washington, Franklin, and Adams, so Palestine will always remember its four founding fathers, Herzl, Weizmann, Brandeis, and Weiss. At the end of the ceremonies, a statue is unveiled, which is the broad image of the classic figure of Dr. Weiss. On its base are inscribed the words, Not unlike Moses, he carried the burdens of his suffering people. There is a special celebration under the auspices of the Jewish Institute of Religion, founded by Dr. Weiss 102 years earlier. There are now more than 30 such institutions, training young men for the rabbinate. Most of these institutions are named after their original founder. The president of the institute makes the significant point that Dr. Weiss has had more disciples than any other leader in the history of Judaism. The chief rabbi of Palestine in an address, which is televised to most of the countries of the world, says that when Dr. Weiss was distressed at the murder of six million of his brethren, he stood upright and raised a prophetic voice in soul-searing torrents of denunciation. Like coruscating cascades of burning lava, his words consumed all before him. At the Hebrew University, an author who has written one of the 52 biographies of Dr. Weiss tells his audience, while Dr. Weiss's name is now universally revered, a careful study of his life reveals that during his own lifetime, he was by no means entirely free from criticism. Like Lincoln and Roosevelt, he was the subject of much bitterness and resentment. But, continues the author with a flicker of his smile, barely discernible, even our best researchers do not now remember the names of any of his detractors. Their names are buried in oblivion, while his name lives on lust. Okay, suffice it to say that Dr. Weiss's name has not lived on lustrously, and that next year on the 150th anniversary of Weiss's birth, there will be no mass celebrations in America or in Israel. 52 biographies have not been written about him, nor do 30 rabbinic schools exist training Reformed Jews for the rabbinate. I believe Reformed Jewry has only one or two such institutions, and most of its students are not even Jewish, let alone male. 
Here with me to discuss this issue and more is Zalman Alpert, a reference librarian at Yeshiva University for close to 40 years or maybe even more than 40 years. In response to my piece on Weiss, Zalman Alpert emailed me arguing that the vast majority of Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Rabbanim didn't do any more than Weiss did to save Jews during the Holocaust. I'm going to raise this topic with Zalman, but first, welcome Zalman to the program. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining. Before we get to Weiss and his response to the Holocaust, share with the audience, please, a little bit about your background. When and where did you grow up? Who were your parents? How did you get to become a librarian at Yeshiva University, etc.? I grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I went to school there. My parents were Holocaust survivors from white Russia slash Lithuania. I started working in uh, Yeshiva University in approximately 1977 after working at the Yivo Institute for Jewish Research for several years as a librarian. And I worked at Yeshiva University until I retired in 2015, approximately. Okay, so most people who listen to this podcast are listening to it, not watching it, so they don't see that you have a full Hasidic-looking beard. So do you have a Hasidic background, a non-Hasidic background, mixed I think I am very much like many Jews before World War II. People came from mixed backgrounds. People grew up Hasidic and left and came back. So my father came from a Hasidic background, but after World War II, he uh, disconnected. You know, he was a concentration camp for five years. But I did attend the Lubavitcher Yeshiva here in New Haven, and I've always been interested in Hasidic life. And I would consider myself, although I doubt that the... uh, main organization of Lubavitch would consider me a Lubavitcher. But regardless of what they may think, I do consider myself a Lubavitcher. Interesting. And your mother was Hasidic also? No, my mother came from a Misnagdic background in Lithuania, White Russia. And again, it's really none of my business, but I guess it's the job of people doing interviews. Your parents met informally, formally? I mean, Hasidic, not Hasidic? No, my parents both survived concentration camps, and they were in displaced people's camp in Germany after 1945, after their liberation. And they met there and got married there, as did many of the survivors. Uh-huh. Okay, I want to get to the Holocaust, but maybe general comment or discussion quickly on, because nowadays that would very, very rarely happen, that a Hasid would marry a non-Hasid. I mean, even among Hasidim, I think there was a laboratory who married a Sabmer within the past year and was considered a major, um, I don't know, breakthrough or achievement or just like, so, something extremely unusual, because even among Hasidim, often they don't marry each other anymore. So here you have a Hasidic person marrying a non-Hasidic person. Some people say that was a better world. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I don't think the degree of sectarianism that we have now in the United States existed before the war. I don't think I'm going to be making a mistake by saying that prior to World War II, there was not one Hasidic cheder in all of Eastern Europe. Chedorim were open to everyone and anyone, and they weren't sponsored by Hasidic groups. And Hasidic yeshivas only started, I mean, Lubavitcher yeshiva started in 1896. But in Poland and in other areas, they didn't start until much later. And even those yeshivas were much more cosmopolitan. For example, the Lubavitcher yeshiva in Odwatsk, a a suburb of Warsaw in the 1930s, most of the student body were not Lubavitchers because there were very, very few Lubavitcher in Poland. 
So the student body consisted of all sorts of people. It's only in America where all these groups live in close geographic proximity to each other that the need for sectarian boundaries has been created. And, you know, in my opinion, not that I'm not sure it counts, but in my opinion, we're worse off for it because I can only think of several rabbis in the United States, Orthodox rabbis, whose influence goes beyond their immediate sectarian group. And I'm not only talking about Hasidim, I'm talking about all sorts of uh, groups. I mean, we used to have rabbis like Rabbi Eliezer Silver and Rabbi Tights in New Jersey and others who influenced all sorts of groups in the United States. But I can hardly think of several today who have any influence outside of the group that they specifically belong to. And I think we're worse off for them. To me, what seems like what happened in America would be the most natural thing to happen. I was reading not so long ago about the history of Beis Yaakov in America. So when Beis Yaakov first opened up, it had all sorts of students, Hasidic, not Hasidic, all different Hasidic groups. But everyone had different customs. I think some Hasidic girls, their parents insisted they stay home on Friday because that's our custom. Some Hasidim didn't want their daughters to study directly from a text. They thought it was not proper, halakhically. So Mrs. Kaplan, Reverend Kaplan, made exceptions, and she catered to every group. But wouldn't it make the most natural sense, and things evolved in such a manner that at the end, when each group grew big enough, they founded schools for their own group so that they could follow their customs more directly and cater and educate their kids more directly. So it seems to me that's a very natural thing to happen as groups get bigger. I think the more the question is, why didn't that happen in Europe? In Europe, the whole Hasidic community and the community in general was community in flux. People became non-religious uh, and people became religious and most people were in between. A lot of people uh, were, you know, traditional. And it's, these categories don't really exist in the United States today anymore because when I say traditional, one would think of someone who makes Kiddush Friday night and uh, maybe goes to Shul Shabbos morning. I'm using the term in a more European sense. And I don't think there were that many hardcore Hasidim or hardcore Misnagdim. People were more organic Jews, as someone accused me a number of years ago. Not accused, he said it positively, that I was one of the last organic Jews. And some Lubavitchers have accused me of being schizophrenic because I can see the good things about that movement. I can see some negative manifestations. Now, you know, I don't think I'm schizophrenic. I think I'm just view things objectively, which very few people today seem to view things. If you are a Satmar, everything Satmar does is right. If you're a a Belzer, everything the Belzer community does is right. So there are very few people who can actually look at a community or at their own community and see both the faults and the positive sides to it, because people now no longer identify as Jews. People identify with their group. So if an ambulance is coming down with a siren in 1940 in the United States in the Lower East Side, a Jew would say, I hope that is not a Jew. That accident does not involve a Jew. Today, chances are that a Kleisenberger cluster would say, I hope that's not part of my community. I hope that ambulance is not in response if he's a Belzer to a Belzer Hussit. And, you know, this is actually has legal implications because the Hasidic community has decided to go for it in Washington, D.C. in terms of job aid and all sorts of government assistance by defining themselves as Hasidic. And I wouldn't say I'm a liberal, 
But, you know, for a black person to change colors is impossible. But for a chassid, if he shaves off his beard and he's getting aid from government agencies for being a chassid, should he still receive aid? This is ridiculous, in my opinion. The Hasidic community is violating some halachas, as far as I'm concerned, about making agudos agudos and separating themselves from the klal by doing this. But it is done. They, they view themselves as Hasidim first and Jews second. And this is true about every group except, you know, and here again, maybe I don't see our faults, but modern orthodoxy more or less can there is a less to it, which I've discovered myself since I live in New Haven. But many parts of modern orthodoxies still will invite Hasidic speakers to their show. They'll invite Russia yeshivas from the yeshiva world, and they will invite modern orthodox people. For example, let's talk about Lubavitch. Lubavitch will send out people to yeshiva university to teach, to try to influence the students, but they certainly will not allow even the greatest YU Russia yeshiva to come to 770 and give a shear in 770. I have never heard about that. For example, YU did host the Baba Rebbe's son, who later became the Baba Rebbe, Rebbe Naftal Chihalmashtam. They hosted him and he spoke. So there is, you know, I'm not saying any of these uh, issues are uh, dispositive, but they do exist. Okay, I'm going to get to the Holocaust just in a moment. Just to clarify for the audience, for those who don't know, because I barely knew about this, I believe you're referring to the fact that Hasidim legally try to claim that they are a minority and therefore they qualify for certain government programs. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now let's get to the Holocaust, which was the main reason for this interview. So, do you agree with the mainstream view of Weiss as someone who essentially did nothing as six million Jews were slaughtered in Europe? Well, before I answer that question... You know, I am not sure that that's the mainstream view. That's the view of Orthodox Jews. We, Orthodox Jews, view Weiss as a villain because allegedly he knew what was going on and he didn't inform us and he didn't use his good offices to intervene with Roosevelt. I'm not certain, though, that that's the view of people outside of the Orthodox community. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned to you, two or three full-scale biographies of Twice have been written by academics in the last 20 years. I mean, they don't paint Weiss as a saint, but on the other hand, they don't paint him as a villain either. Okay, no, you very well may be correct. So let's just pretend I said the word from in there, the mainstream from view that he was yeah. the devil. I think that, by the way, I think our view of Reverend Weiss is based partially on a prejudice that this man was a reformed rabbi. Okay, makes sense. Now, we don't usually think of rabbis not wearing yarmulkes and things of that nature. I'll ask for um, forgiveness from any of his descendants who may be listening, but he was not a moral person. He had mistresses. He cheated on his wife. People know this. So I'm not here to defend his character. I was actually wondering about that because a Victor Miller... In one of these emails that tens of thousands of people now get containing Rabbi Victor Miller's ideas and hashkafa and thoughts about life and all sorts of issues, in one of them, he claims that Stephen Weiss, he says, raped a woman. And he said he read it somewhere, I think, in a newspaper. So I actually contacted Rafael Medoff because he would know, I, I guess. Um, he doesn't like me for, I think, a very silly reason. We got into an argument at the Jewish press once over the publication of something. So... He didn't answer me, so I don't really know. There was another person who was trying to track the story down. But 
Have you ever heard that before? Is that true? Yeah, I don't know if the word rape is appropriate, but he forced himself on a woman. I think she was a journalist for a newspaper in New York. And I have read that. Sorry? Yeah, I have read that in print someplace. I don't recall when. It may be in one of the biographies even. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, today, I guess, you know, uh, it would be called rape, but I'm not sure at that time it was called rape. He, uh, you know, he just didn't take no for an answer. Uh, He was a very strong, he was a very strong person who didn't take no for an answer from anyone except for Franklin Roosevelt. Right, right. Okay, so so if you could talk a little bit about the Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, should he be blamed? I mean, some people say, look, Roosevelt was the best we had. You know, what do you want him to do? It's like, you know, during the Trump era, conservatives liked Trump, even when they didn't like something they did. They said, they said, look, he's our guy. We can't alienate him over every single little thing. He's more or less on our team. So if uh, here and there, sometimes he doesn't do what we want. It's still better for him to be in our good graces so that later on, he could help us out. It doesn't make any sense to alienate him. And Baby Weiss was thinking the same thing at the time. Uh, it's possible. I mean, I happen to feel that the problem with Stephen Weiss and his cohort was that they were more concerned about establishing a Jewish state than they were about saving six million Jews. So Weiss was always looking about the future, and he wasn't the only one. I think a lot of the Zionist leaders in the United States were looking to curry favor with Roosevelt in terms of an eventual support of the creation of a Jewish state. And the six million Jews or the Jews in Europe were a secondary issue. I don't think they ignored it completely, but I don't think that was their main issue. Their main issue was creating a Jewish state in Israel. And in that case, I think what you said is is correct, that they did not want to alienate themselves from Weiss. But I think, from Roosevelt, but I think where Roosevelt failed, unlike Trump, in my opinion, is that in little things, what we would call in uh, Hebrew, pachim kitanim, in the little things, Roosevelt was a total failure. For example, bombing Auschwitz, the railroad tracks to Auschwitz, would not have been a major expense or a major uh, detour from the American war effort. Yet it wasn't done. Roosevelt didn't insist that the railroad tracks to Auschwitz were bombed. For example, admitting ships with refugees prior to 1939 or 1941 when America entered the war, Roosevelt refused to admit four or 500 Jews on various boats. Except that if you let in one boat, they would have to let in more boats. So supposing he had let in the St. Louis, which came, I think, in June or July of 1939. Okay, so then there would have been another ship that came. Eventually, he would have had to have been cruel. I mean, you have the same thing now in Europe with all the migrants. There are Muslim immigrants overrunning Europe, and that's because Europeans didn't want to be cruel. But you have to be cruel once if you think it's in your national best interest to stop the ships. Because only by being cruel once will the ships stop coming. And as it is, by the way, as I'm sure, of course, you know, the people on the St. Louis were sent back to Europe. Now, there had not been a war yet. The Holocaust had not started yet. The World War had not started yet. So it's not like when America and the State Department turned back the ship that they knew that, that these Jews were going back to their deaths. They thought they were going back to a very difficult life, perhaps, but not to their deaths. And three quarters of those Jews actually survived. And also another point, I mean, there's so many moving parts here, but another point, of course, is that FDR was trying to prepare and rally the nation to fight the Nazis because he saw the fight coming. He saw Hitler as a threat to the world, and he felt he couldn't really stand up for the Jews so much because then people will say it's a Jewish war and you're helping the Jews and you don't really care about the America. And he had to be very careful. There was Half the country was against preparing for war against Germany. 
and they didn't really see the Germany as a threat at the time. And FDR had to, had to play his cards very carefully. And it wasn't just so simple for him to just let in Jews. You once suggested to me in conversation that FDR could have used his bully pulpit to try to convince Americans to help the suffering European Jews, which is a, a very interesting point. But nonetheless, I don't think the situation is nearly as simple as people paint it. No, I think Roosevelt had enough influence and the United States had enough influence in certain Latin American countries, for example, Cuba, to force them or influence them to allow Jews into Cuba, Mexico, Panama, other places. We're not talking about millions of Jews. We're talking about hundreds or tens of thousands or thousands. And I think that could have been done, but I, I don't think he was really interested. But, you know, I'm not going to, if anything, I am sort of sympathetic towards the other view, which you're expressing, that uh, Roosevelt was president of the United States. He wasn't uh, president of a Jewish center, and he uh, had to worry about the United States and and trying to save England at that time. So I understand that. Nevertheless, I think he could have done more. Okay. So let's get to from Jewry also, because one of your main arguments, I think, is that, okay, there's different vantage points. There's looking from the vantage point of Roosevelt, but if you're looking from the vantage point of Jewry, you're arguing that it wasn't just the case that maybe Weiss didn't do so much. I believe your contention is that all of American Jewry, including the frumest of from American Jewry, didn't do enough also. Am I correct? And if, if yes, could you please elaborate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think um, we, we are bombarded by propaganda coming out of the offices of Agudas Yisrael. And I'll say that it's Agudas Yisrael is doing most of this. They've paid for books written by uh, the late Dr. Kranzler and others to show that they did help Jews in Europe. This is, I wouldn't call it a lie, but I would call it misinformation, fake news. Because what Agud Israel did is, first of all, before 1941, it did try to get yeshiva students out of Lithuania. Fine, they deserve credit for that. But their efforts were limited to yeshiva students. Once again, you know, we, we see the rise of sectarianism. Their efforts were not to get Reb Yisrael out of Europe or to do anything substantive or on a large scale. Their efforts were get the yeshiva students. And as you said before about Germany and Roosevelt, that wasn't even due to any, we didn't know there was a Holocaust that was supposed to happen after, uh, 1941. Uh, their efforts were, they saw that these schools were being closed either by the Soviet Union when they took over Lithuania or they were under threat from uh, German control. Uh, later on, the Aguda sent packages to Jewish refugees in uh, Central Asia. True enough, it's nice, they deserve credit for it. But to say that they were involved in rescue efforts, this is an overstatement. Yes, there were religious Jews in Switzerland and other places who were one-man shows. Mr. Eyes in, in Switzerland. There may have been some Jews in Great Britain. And if anything, those Jews were encouraged not by Aguda leaders in New York, but they were encouraged by Rabbi Weissmandel, who was living under Nazi occupation in Slovakia. Rabbi Weissmandel was, if anything, he and what his group who was called the Working Group in Slovakia were much more involved in trying to get Jews in countries like Sweden and Switzerland 
and even the United States involved in this. But to say that Orthodox Jews in America did anything major to save Jews in Europe is not true. I mean, one looks at the Orthodox Jewish newspapers, and there were a few of them published in those years. One sees advertisements for Gartenberg's Pioneer Country Club. There's no advertisement not to eat. There's no advertisement to say we're going to fast twice a day and we're going to send the money someplace to help save the Jews. No, there's quite the contrary. Go and take your vacation in Gartenberg's Country Club and in other such places in the Catskills. Malava Malkus for yeshivas, as if those were the most important things while six million Jews were killed. By the way, you know, the Aguda misstates other things, right? Weissmandel in his book, Mina Meitzar, writes he doesn't know how Jews in the United States can sleep while six million Jews are killed. Right, Weissmandel wasn't talking to reform Jews. He wasn't talking to God. He was talking to them. He was talking to the Fruma Yidin, how they can sleep, how they can go on with their lives while six million Jews are being killed. But they misconstrue what he said as if he were talking to reform rabbis in the United States. No, he was talking to them. And Torah Vadas and Chaim Berlin and all the other yeshivas that existed in America, including where I worked for years, Yeshiva University, did very little. I mean, I once reviewed a biography of Dr. Belkin. And I mentioned that fact, that Belkin seemed to do nothing to help Jews from Eastern Europe during the Holocaust, and I was told to remove that. Publication that I was writing for told me that they could not print that, because you know what? It was true. The Yeshiva University students may have had a one- or two-day um, demonstration or something. I seem to recall something like that. But besides the march from the Agudas Rabbonim, the Union of Orthodox Rabbis of the United States, which, by the way, was not Agudas Yisrael. The Agudas Rabbonim in those days was basically led by rabbis affiliated with the Mizrahi, Rabbi Rosenberg, Rabbi Leventhal, and others, with the exception of Rabbi Lelzer Silver, who was affiliated with the Aguda. Now, the Aguda Sarabunim did have a march to Washington, which is nice, and they deserve a tremendous commendation for doing that. But as I wrote, why didn't they march every week? I mean, is putting on film a mitzvah that you do once in your life? Or is uh, eating kosher something that you do only on Shabbos? If you're going to march to Washington, and Roosevelt did not receive them, by the way, and I don't know if that was due to uh, Weiss or to other Jews active in the Democratic Party who told them that these were old-fashioned men and you know you really should have nothing to do with them. I don't know what the real reason was why you didn't want to receive them. But, you know, they should try and try again. Our black community, 30 years later, didn't give up on one march. I mean, they had a major march in Washington, but they had many other marches, and many other demonstrations. And I don't see any record besides a march in the Lower East Side organized by rabbis uh, of any demonstrations. I don't see any call for a national day of fast among Orthodox Jews. I don't see anything. I see, yes, I do see there were relief efforts. And there's a distinction between relief and rescue. There were packages sent to Central Asia for Jewish refugees from Poland. There were attempts to get the yeshiva students out of Lithuania prior to 1941, and some of them were successful. But that's not exactly rescue efforts. And there were packages perhaps even sent to the ghettos. But, you know, it, do it doesn't seem 
that the business of life stopped in America, even among Orthodox Jews. It doesn't seem that way. By the way, yes, there were many Orthodox Jews who joined the United States Army after 1941, no doubt about it. Any synagogue of a certain age, you walk in, you'll see an honor roll mentioning those soldiers who served and those soldiers of that community who unfortunately died. But you know what? There was the flip side of it. There were many Orthodox Jews of the ultra-Orthodox community, which was a small community then, who dodged the draft. They wouldn't even join the United States Army in 1941 to fight Hitler. I don't want to mention any names, but one reason Joseph Lukstein, Rabbi Joseph Lukstein, is disliked by the yeshiva community in America is because Lukstein railed against this. Lukstein said everyone ought to join the United States Army. We're fighting Germany. And Lukstein um, probably, whether it's within halachic boundaries or not, I don't decide those things. But Lukstein apparently even told the local draft boards about this sort of thing, that people were dodging the draft by claiming to be theological students. So he was disliked till the very end of his life by the right wing. And it didn't really have that much to do with his school Ramaz or with his theology. That was sort of a camouflage for what they really disliked him for. So there's a lot to talk about. And a lot of this has not been written. But a study of the uh, Morgan Journal, which was the Orthodox Daily newspaper, will reveal some of these things. And a study of other Jewish media at the time will also help reveal such things. But it awaits a, um, to use the Hebrew term, a goel. It, re- it awaits a redeemer, someone who could objectively study this. I'm going to push back on some of the things you said in a moment. But before I do that, I'm just going to help you out for a second or add a piece of evidence to your argument, when I was writing about Saul Bloom, who was the most powerful Jewish congressman at the time for my PhD. Anyway, so um, I found a newsletter from the West Side Institutional Synagogue, and I'm sure like, I, this could be repeated many times over. Just, this happens to be a newsletter that I happen to have access to. And it says, May 3rd, 1943, the uh, Women's League is announcing a fascinating guest speaker at their next meeting. And the fascinating guest speaker is going to speak about the personal and social life of the Chinese people. This is May 7th, 1943. So to your point, you know, they weren't exactly focusing exclusively on saving Jews. They're having social lectures about the history of the Chinese people. But to push back a teeny bit on what you're saying, the argument on the other side is that, first of all, many people at the time did not really appreciate the nature of the Holocaust. They thought, look, Jews suffer in war, Jews suffer in all wars, and everyone is suffering in war. I mean, there were 3 million Soviet prisoners of war who died in Nazi prisoner of war camps. In Nazi prisoner of war camps for Western soldiers, the death rate was 5%. In Nazi prisoner of wars for Soviets, it was 58%. And many people say that one of the reasons it was 10 times higher is because the Nazis considered the Slavs to be an inferior race, and therefore we don't really care if they die. So you have 3 million of these people dying. And so and that's just one example. There were many people dying during the war. It's one mass heap of suffering. And I guess a lot of Jews just figured, look, this is war. We just have to pray and hope the war ends as quickly as possible. The American government is trying to defeat Hitler. They claim they're trying to do it as fast as possible. They're claiming they're doing everything they can. I think a lot of American Jews just gave the American government the benefit of the doubt, and they thought there was nothing they really could do about it all. What you're saying is true. I I don't disagree with that. But I think if you examine, and I have not done that, but I think if you examine the activities of the American Jewish community 
both orthodox, socialist, and reform through the American Jewish Committee and the Agudas uh, Rabbanim, and they all had three different rescue committees during World War One, and then they combined for the joint. That's why it's called the Joint Distribution Committee. They did more during World War One to help the displaced Jews, and I would posit that American Jews rose up in a much more concerted effort during World War I, sending food and packages and all sorts of things to help literally millions of displaced Jews and hungry Jews. During World War II, one doesn't see anything like that. The joint itself was, in my opinion, um, dysfunctional during World War II. You know, when Rabbi Weissmandel wanted money to bribe certain Nazi officers in uh, Budapest for a deal with Eichmann, which is the famous story of uh, Kastner. Uh, the joint's representative, Sally Meyer, in uh, Switzerland, uh, refused to give him the money, even though the money was available. And that's not orthodox. But I don't think American Jews really rose to the occasion. And it may very well be because, as Judge Jonah Goldstein, who was a Republican, and a candidate for mayor, I believe, of New York against LaGuardia, once said so uh, so nicely that Jews believe in Yennervelt, they believe in Demvelt, and they believe in Roosevelt. And I think the fact that Roosevelt was president harmed Jewish rescue efforts because Jews thought that Roosevelt was their greatest friend and they had nothing to worry about. Whereas during World War One. Wilson was in the White House, and I don't think Wilson was anti-Jewish. But on the other hand, I've never seen anyone claim that he was particularly pro-Jewish either. So I think Jews did feel that they needed to take action by themselves. But I think World War II, the fact that Roosevelt was president was sort of a, uh, a negative thing for Jews, because Jews really believed that this man was their best friend. I wonder if you could talk about, in the march, two opposite sides of the spectrum, Ravarin Cutler and Lubavitch. So Ravarin Cutler was apparently against the march and did not join it. Apparently, Lubavitch did send a delegation, but in general, apparently, the Sixth Lubavitch Rebbe was very against marches. I don't know why he made an exception for that one. Could you talk a little bit about why Ravarin was against it and why Lubavitch was against most marches, but not against that one in particular? Well, I don't know any specific information about it, but I can say the following. Rabbi Aaron Kotler may not have participated, but his partners in arms, uh, Rabbi Avram Kalmanovich, who was the president of the Mir Yeshiva and arrived here in 1939 or 40 to help the relief efforts of the uh, Yeshiva Bacharim in, in Lithuania, he did march. As a matter of fact, he was in the front line. And most of the other rabbis in America who later became active in the Yeshiva movement were also in the march. Now, I don't know whether Rabbi Aaron was for it or against it, now, as far as Lubavitch goes, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was represented by a very low-level representation. I think Dr. Mindel, who, uh, you know, I don't know if he was a rabbi or he wasn't a rabbi, but he certainly was not a pulpit rabbi, and by uh, Zalman Gurari, who, uh, whatever he was, I mean, he was a teacher in Lubavitcher Yeshiva at that time. Neither of his son-in-law's participated in the march, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, later to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, or Rabbi Samarius Gorari, known as the Rashag. Neither of them were there. 
and neither was the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself, although by that time he may have been ill, so I'm not. By the way, several other of the post-war major leaders of right-wing orthodoxy were not there. Rabbi Soloveitchik was not there. At least Rabbi Soloveitchik had good sense in one of his essays to um, admit the guilt and say he's, to this day, he doesn't know why he didn't participate in the march. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, as far as I can remember, was not in the march. There are many rabbis who are not in the march. That doesn't necessarily mean they were opposed to it. It just means that they didn't go for whatever reason. They may have had justifiable um, reasons for not attending the march. But I think there were a lot of rabbis who did. Clearly, there were quite a number of people who did attend the march, and they all deserve credit for, for coming. You know, even though I, I have my criticism why they didn't march again and again, but never that doesn't mean that they don't deserve a tremendous amount of credit, given the circumstances of those days, for even marching once. It, it was a, a major thing for uh, 500 rabbis, most of them who were not born in the United States, to uh, go up to Washington and march and try to meet with the savior of the Jewish people, one Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, this took a lot of chutzpah. And uh, as they say, chutzpah de kedusha, holy chutzpah. Right. But, you know, we live in an era where people march all the time. In the 1960s, marches were very successful. In the 40s, it was a different era. People didn't really march at all. It was a novel concept. And also, I mean, honestly, if you think about it practically speaking, so you march. Let's say you meet with Roosevelt. It's not like the Jewish leaders never met with Roosevelt. They had other meetings with Roosevelt, and they went there, and they said what they wanted to say, and Roosevelt said what he wanted to say, and the meeting ended, and nothing happened. I mean, marches are not magic solutions, and they certainly weren't done back then. So, I mean, maybe that's why people just didn't march. It wasn't just something people thought of doing, really. And it's not clear what would have happened also. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is obviously true, but the fact that the Agudas Rabbonim did march means that marches were in people's minds. I mean, if there were no marches at all, then I think what you had just said would really be 100% true. But the fact that the Agudas Rabbonim did have a march does indicate that marches were on people's minds. And, you know, there were other marches. There was a uh, Catholic priest his name was Reverend Cox in Pittsburgh, who was very involved during the Depression. And he led a group of people, a large number of people, to march on Washington as well. Now, I'm always confused. There was another Cox in Ohio who was also involved in a similar thing. He was not a Catholic priest, who I think also organized a march. But I, I'm, I'm a bit confused about that. But one or both of these people with the same last name did organize a march to Washington. And, you know, I bet there were other marches as well. This is not something that Martin Luther King Jr. invented. I mean, they weren't as ubiquitous as they are in the last 50 years, that's for sure. But what I think that the Agudas Rabbonim wanted is five minutes with Roosevelt. And why? They figured that they may be able to sway Roosevelt's conscience. And as a matter of fact, when Rabbi Kalmanovich and Rabbi Kotler, and I think there was some other rabbi with them who spoke English, went to see Henry, is it Henry Morgenthau? I think so. Yeah, the Secretary of Treasury under Roosevelt, who was the highest ranking Jew in Roosevelt's administration, um, they got to Morgenthau. I don't mean into his office. They did get into his office, but they got to his heart. And Morgenthau was taken. He became 
an important player in this. And he was the person who convinced Roosevelt by hook or crook. He threatened to resign if Roosevelt did not create the WRB, the War Refugee Board, which was, this was in late 44, I believe. Uh, I, uh, well, I think, no, January 44. I think January, okay. January 20th or January 22nd, I think. 44. Okay. So the War Refugee Board, People claim it rescued, if the claims made by people to the number of Jews it rescued were true, then uh, six million Jews wouldn't have been killed. But it did rescue many Jews in Romania and in uh, Budapest. And as a matter of fact, Wallenberg, I don't know if he was working for the WRB, but he was certainly working with the WRB. So the WRB was a bright side of America's activities to help the Jews in Europe, but it was too late. It was too late and too little. But because of Morgenthau, the WRB was established. Now, it could very well be that if Kalmanovich and whoever the other rabbis, leading rabbis, got in to see Roosevelt, perhaps they would have gotten to his heart too. I mean, I'm not accusing Roosevelt of having a heart of stone. Perhaps if they, unlike Stephen Weiss, had actually presented the case about what is going on there and what he, you know, should do. Just like Mordecai told Esther that, you know, if you're not going to act, our rescue will come from some other place. If they had spoken the same way to Roosevelt, perhaps something would have been done. I don't know. But perhaps, and I think that's what, what they were hoping for. All right. Stay tuned for part two of this interview which will be available, God willing, this coming Wednesday night.